And welcome to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps one of our wonderful radio syndicates across the country, or perhaps again on our podcast, which can be found on greenmajority.ca, as well as all of the show notes. I am one of your co-hosts, Devin Hostetter, live in studio with Dave Hostetter. Uh, Sayon Kister is going to jump in and also on tech. And today we are talking about coal in the end of the segment. We'll have some Trudeau. Uh, a quick update uh, about uh, S- Senator Warren's proposals, uh, because shortly after a show uh, last week, she released a sort of a, l- a larger update about some of the stuff she's working on leading up to the climate debate that CNN or Climate Town Hall, technically, that CNN held this week. Note to you, CBC, get on that. Uh, and um, and then finally, uh, we're starting off with with uh, with some comments about Roger Helm. But before all of this. We are uh, doing a bit of rundown. It is, of course, the beginning of September. So if you are uh, a university student listening to this, uh, welcome back to school. If you're a high school student listening to this, welcome back to school. If you are a elementary school uh, kid listening to this, um, welcome back to school. And also thanks for, for being so on top of this, uh, this issue. I, I appreciate your listening, especially for the ages 12 and under, uh, because honestly, it, it, re- it will affect you the most. So the one of the things, the big news story that we'll be covering on this uh, in September will be leading up to the climate week that is starting on September 20th all the way into the international strike for climate. What will be leading up? The the, the next couple episodes. We'll be, we'll be talking will we? about it. We'll be we talking be. about it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we'll be talking about it. I don't it's, know who's uh, going to be talking about it. Probably me. Okay. I'm going to be talking about it. Uh, but we'll be starting on the 20th, uh, leading up to the 27th. Uh, there are uh, days of action, uh, a whole bunch of different events going on internationally. Hit the, me, Stefan. Hit me. So the, uh, well, we're going to cover five that are just sort of happening uh, in, in Toronto. But again, these are these are things that are happening all across the world. So wherever you are listening, uh, you can go uh, look, search, for, especially for the 27th International Strike for Climate. But the there's things happening all across the world uh, for this whole climate week. And are these the clarion bells of a global uprising? This is this is the question. I think actually, I think this is one of the one of the things we will be will have to see. Um, and so, just very quickly, if you are in the Toronto area, uh, I've got uh, a list of uh, some of the events. There's many, many, many more events than just these that I'm listening listing. Uh, and more can be found on the website climatechallenge.ca, which has a great event listing, and it will be continue up. It'll be updated as as we move forward. So thanks to the folks over there for putting this together. But the twentieth is uh, is is sort of the kickoff. There's a couple different events, but there's also, but leading the youth climate strike uh, in Teach-In, uh, which will be happening actually directly outside of Hart House at 12 p.m. So right outside of the studio. On that, the 20th of September. On the 20th of September, Friday, September 20th, right outside of the, the, the studio that we record from, right after the end of the show. The show will end, and then uh, and then you can go and, and go, go learn about climate uh, right outside. They're just going to be discussing it in the open air. Yeah, so, yeah, talking about climate strike and also a teach-in about information, yes. Hmm. Um, right in the heart of circle from 12 to 3. On the 22nd, uh, Climate Fast has put together a youth climate summit, uh, a youth summit slash climate leadership forum. I believe that's at the Friends House, but you can search that too. Uh, on the t- also, on the 22nd and 23rd, it appears that there might be a, uh, there's plans for a multi-faith all-night vigil in Trinity Square. Uh, wow. all and night. All night. Where's Trinity Square? Uh, it's in Toronto, Dave. Oh. Yeah. 
<laughs> the, in case you were wondering, uh, Google exists. Um, it's downtown Toronto. Okay. Uh, and then throughout this whole week, expect to see a series of Extinction Rebellion roadblocks, not only in Toronto, but, uh, but again, uh, in other places as well. And, uh, and then finally, the, the big day is, Oct- is September 27th, which is the International Strike for Climate. And it's both a, both the idea is both a youth strike and then also a general strike. So the idea is they're calling, this is the time the youth have called everyone to come together uh, and join them in this strike. For the 27th. For the 27th, yes. Yeah. So September 27th is really the big day. Again, it's another Friday. Uh, the, 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 in Toronto, it starts at 11 uh, in Queen's Park. Uh, the march begins at 12. So, so leave, leave work uh, and, and come, uh, come join the fight. Can this be described as civil disobedience or is it just a march? Uh, I believe this, this particular action, I believe, is, it would, would be I, some, it would be a march specifically. Mm. Uh, it's, it's a sanctioned march. I believe they're, they, mm. they are, they've informed the people of what they're doing. Okay. Uh, now, whether or not other actions are taking place in civil disobedience, you usually aren't so public about your civil disobedience actions. No, no, they are. The, the, even the Extinction Rebellion people will contact the police and they'll be like, we're blockading these bridges. I right. Mean, but it's just because they're important bridges that wouldn't have been sanctioned for a march. Right. Yes. But, but the, the purpose of that is usually to minimize the likelihood of SWAT showing up in addition to police. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and, and, and not to mention, uh, uh, still actually trying to ensure that people can get around in case for emergency vehicles and stuff like that. You you still don't want to be hurting people with these types of actions um, in that kind of way. So, yeah. So basically the 20th, 27th, there's going to be a, a whole range of actions. ClimateChallenge.ca has a great event listing that's going to keep being updated and more information will be rolling out as we get closer. There's a whole bunch of other stuff going on. So just check out that event listing and other event listings for, for more things you can do. Greta Thunberg has crossed the Atlantic. Yes, she's landed in 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 uh, in the states. She's Apparently, Hallam gave a speech in Toronto too recently. Oh, there you go. Um, so, well, it's a global movement. That's the that is the thing. Um, impressive uh, to the to the commitment of of Greta to take the to the boat, despite all of the absolutely ludicrous attacks uh, on her character because of it. But uh, let's move into uh, into our into some of our news stories, starting off. Uh, with Roger Hallam, in fact, uh, of the uh, of the Extinction Rebellion, um, and and sort of his his ethos around why action is so necessary. I just want to know what the attacks were for taking the boat specifically. Uh, uh, just that it wanted to do enough. I don't know. There was one woman who's t- one woman speaking out of her saying, "I fly all over the place and don't feel bad." But imagine if she had flown, Stefan. Imagine if she had flown. Oh yeah, these are not good faith <laughs> arguments. These are these are wastes of space. Okay. Uh, but anyways. So yes, Roger Hallam uh, is a leading member of the group that declared a rebellion against the British government in 2018 for criminal activity on climate change. Hallam is an organic farmer from Wales who began studying the science of social movements after the climate crisis began threatening his livelihood and those of his fellow farmers. Now he works seven days a week on Extinction Rebellion and sometimes gives talks to convince people to join the movement. In one such lecture, he gives some illustrations of the interest the movement has garnered worldwide, noting that frightened rich people from California called him up and started raising millions of pounds for them after their houses burned down last year. A top diplomat organizing COP25 in Chile is trying to convince them to cause enough chaos at the event to shut down the whole thing this year. And someone from the BBC, an anchor of sorts, called them up to give them details on how to most effectively shut down the British Parliament. And his argument 
which is not necessarily identical with the position of every Extinction Rebellion activist, but is probably similar, runs as follows. Even if we stop emitting tomorrow, we will still experience global warming beyond 2 degrees Celsius because of the delayed effects of what we've already emitted. Climate change will cause complete social collapse unless urgent action is taken. So everything we hold dear is going down the drain anyway. Any hope of a stable future is already gone. So we might as well risk our careers and our plans in order to do everything we can to immediately address the problem. To achieve these ends, we must apply the science of social movements, because the environmental movement has done everything so far except what actually works, which is civil disobedience, societal disruption. He argues it works because A, it costs the opponent money, B, it garners actual attention, uh, and C, people are sacrificing their privilege and liberty for the common good. It is necessary because information never changes entrenched power, and what changes people is seeing others suffer for their beliefs. Therefore, we have a moral imperative for acts of sustained civil disobedience. Thus, the rebellion declares, or at least declared at one point recently this year, uh, starting on Monday, October 7th, we are joining together as a global family in an international rebellion as we grieve the suffering and destruction of our beautiful home world. We will gather with our communities across cities, countries, and continents to rise up and rebel for our deep love of life and the need to protect it. So, there it is, Stefan. I'm wondering if you agree that we have a moral imperative for sustained acts of civil disobedience. Yes. Um, a moral imperative might be a, a little strong, given given the number of other things that that there's also a moral imperative. I would say to to push for. Um, you know, I, I, it's hard to say that if you are. I, I would certainly not go up to someone who's say trying to you know ensure that we are no longer prisoning children uh, and mm -hmm. say, well, why aren't you taking about climate change? Right? There's there's got to be an understanding that there are many fronts to this general fight. Um, however, the argument that we are sitting in a in a world that that is that is in in grave danger, and and that and certainly the argument that the the things that we might be losing in by a more sustained civil disobedience uh, are are paltry in comparison to what is going to be lost without action. There's certainly a a, a very strong case to be made that we must act. Uh, and and that and that also you know that we what we have currently done has not worked. So do you uh, think we should all stop working and uh, join the rebellion like, 24 seven? No, mainly because we all can't stop working. Right. Mm -hmm. There's there's a level of uh, requirement in many different ways in which why not everyone cannot make that decision for first off. People do not have the level of safety net that would that they could survive on that front. You have to be very like you have to be basically an organic farmer who has their own farm to feed themselves to be able to do that 24 seven. You have to eat. You have to survive. Um, and and so the idea that you should that everyone should drop what they're doing uh, it just doesn't work. Now, uh, those of us who can, uh, those of us who have the ability to 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 take action, uh, should. And the are you going to quit your job? No, 
I like because 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 the other thing is that if everyone just actually stopped functioning society, then you wouldn't have the mechanisms to to actually then do the change, right? Like it's it's you can't like you desperately need enough people to force that real action, but at the same time, you need the people to then do the work. You know, everyone can't, could not the difficulty to organize and to and to build afterwards. You get the political change, or the, the the switch you need still requires an infrastructure to actually accomplish the goals. Like you could not have, the, and that would take forever to build up if we're not at least in some way using the system that currently exists. Like it would take so long to rebuild all of society uh, if everyone left their jobs and then had to find jobs again in the new. Like you just could. It doesn't. That doesn't line. The, the, if you're looking for the fastest possible transition, you have to basically use every single avenue available to you, which includes people who are still working in the, in the mechanisms of this, uh, of this economy to use what they have available to also make those changes. You know, it, the, uh, you have to have a, uh, it, you need everyone in all different areas of, of, of society to be able to, to start making these changes. And so the idea that everyone should quit their job is 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 or or stop doing what they're doing doesn't doesn't track. Um, but um, then then it's a question of like how much should one sacrifice? Yeah, and I think that's a personal question for every individual. But uh, but I think that the but the the call that significant sacrifice is is necessary to get the get the movement the ball rolling uh, is 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 a strong one. Do you believe that that the two degrees Celsius Paris goal is a lie? That it's not possible to to make. That in fact we've already overshot it. I think that it's at this point. Well, it's, the Paris goal is one point five. Um, or so the yeah the Paris goal. Yeah, well, it was originally two, and then they're yes. like maybe one point five. Yeah, uh, I, I would say that the I would say that without a pretty significant set of other things, I think that the amount of missions we're currently admitting certainly puts us on track well, well above. That most reductions also would put us above. However, a a, a truly fundamental shift that also included a significant amount of capturing, whether that's through tree planting uh, and other and other options, you could still theoretically get close to that. Um, but you know, I, I, like likely, yes, we're going to see more than two at this point. You know, we haven't been doing the two was a goal. Two was an audacious goal in 2010. Two was a totally doable goal in 2000. It was a difficult goal in 2010. It is a very, very difficult goal now. Um, and so the, you know, is it a mass delusion? I don't know. Mass deli- no, no, because I don't think you can make the case that we should, that, that there are certain people we should sacrifice. You know, the, the idea that 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 we could the, the idea that saying that three is fine um, is is admitting that there are at least millions, if not billions of people who will be underwater. Well, two being the delusion in the sense that, like, it's we're, we're already past it. So why are we using using the number two kind of thing? Well, because honestly, because goalposts need to if we keep move, like if we uh, if the moment you accept that two is is, is not a, is, is is allowable to be moved to three, then then you're admitting to some extent to the people who still don't want to do any action that that these things can ha- keep happening. It's not but, that it should be moved. Right. Because the idea is that eventually we'll get below right back below. Like two, two is the tipping point. Like the thing about two is two degrees is is when there's a, a number of other feedback loops that we theoretically lose control of of this. Well, that's part of why Hallam argues that you know might as well give up everything now because it's already disappearing. Right, and and I, and I, I don't know. I, like I think that the that's again why it's a strong argument because we are in like what's interesting is that the the necessity to respond. 
um, has been has been saying, but but what one would accept as a reasonable response continues to ramp up, which is why which is why I think a lot of society doesn't understand that this is cannot and will not go away. That that you know that when you get one, it's just that the things that are on the table will get more and more extreme. You know, look at Andrew Yang's proposal that we covered last year. This is a this is a person who's polling in the in in, in his is polling and making certain is making the debates uh, in the the Democratic primary, uh, who is arguing that to everyone should evacuate Florida, like that is an extreme position, and yet still not an not not entirely an unreasonable one. Um, uh, and, and, you know, you see even Bernie Sanders is coming, who's, you know, at this point, probably the second in this race is arguing that if, if you lose your house to a, to a hurricane, then, then FEMA should not be necessary, should, should be finding you another place to live rather than rebuilding that exact house. Cause it's just going like, if it's in a, if it's in a place that's in a floodplain or other places, like these are serious potential people to be the most powerful person in the world who are putting forth the arguments that we are that we are living in a very, very changed world, and yet our society continues to pretend that we're not. And so, and so, the, the I, I, I certainly cannot fault anyone who would take Helm's position of dropping everything and just, in, in just civil disobedience until something happens. There's absolutely no argument against why any individual should not make that choice. I think it's dangerous to say that that is a more that that everyone should be doing that. Uh, because I think everyone has different skills and everyone in different needs will be required to actually make real change. You know, you cannot just have complete anarchy and then hope that we could then use comp- from anarchy, pull together a, a the massive action necessary to to, to actually change this. Mm. You know, the mechanisms of, 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 our, of our ability right now are able to affect global things because of how built up they have been over over course of time. And so you need to use the mechanisms to dismantle itself. And, and, and as much as people say, you know, the machines of capitalism won't dismantle, won't, won't, cannot be used to dismantle itself, <laughs> like... You, there's there's a level of which that the the ability to do all these types of things like quickly manufacture enough solar panels that you would need or or all or battery technology all these other things that are sort of working working towards it all of that has to be included and and the and without that without that broad broad response in all the different areas you know there's an article that just came on the Guardian talking about how you know we're running out of phosphate which is an important part of the world food supply and and the fact that like and that has nothing to do with climate change it's an entirely different problem but the I don't think people I don't think people totally understand how we're currently feeding eight billion seven to eight billion people oh it's so tenuous it's so fragile yeah and, and so the idea that like everyone could just sort of move on is really just saying that the people who have the most have the most privilege can just move on and everyone else is stuck doing still making sure that we can eat what on earth are they doing with the phosphate uh it's a it's a fertilizer oh, it's a okay. big fertilizer that's that we're running out of that pictures where algal spr- blooms come from is too much phosphate running off of farm fields and yeah. leaking into groundwater and then the, the the water in the basin where it gets collected uh compiles with phosphate which kills all life and then uh, all mm. life but the fight uh with the blue uh, i believe it's blue green blue, blue green, green algae, algae is yeah exactly it comes yeah. From. yeah i picture you- them sprinkling it into giant vats of uh Banana flavored goop. <laughs> I don't. I don't think that's okay. exactly what they do with that. I think they. Uh, I think they actually use it as part of fertilizer. Um, but it's. But yeah. But 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 I think the like, the overwhelming scope of the problem requires an overwhelming scope of a response, and so the and and so and, but each individual must decide how far they individually would need to and feel like they can make the most difference, and I don't think for everyone that is dropping everything and just protesting every single day. 
uh, because you do still need the mechanisms to then when you because like, like there are two sides of this fight, right? And we've talked about this before on the show is the first side is getting enough political action to begin to actually try to solve the problem. And then there's actually solving the problem mm-hmm. and actually solving the problem is a, an incredible amount of work that no individual, no matter how, no matter who they are, could, could undertake. And so there's, and so there's the strategy to tip the balance, but then there's gotta be the strategy to implement the, the actual work. And those are two vastly different skill sets even to, to change uh, policy than to actually enact the, 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 the project. Like these are, these are very separate jobs. And so, and so what might work to, to get us all on, to get enough people on board to actually do the work is not the same skill set or same people necessarily that would actually need to do the work itself. Um, and so I think there's, so that's the differentiation that I think has to be made here is that everyone who can sh- should do everything they can to ship, tip the balance. But at the same time, we still need people to actually do the work when, when we actually get some solutions. Uh, or we actually get the political motions, machinations forward. Um, but anyways, that is, uh, we'll, we'll head to a music break. We're coming back with, with, uh, with some Trudeau news. Trudeau. Yeah, speaking of the opposite side of the spectrum of, I still say I care, but I'm, do, I'm not really doing things. Um, we'll, we'll come back with that. But, uh, but first, uh, let's go to a music break in Saren. Yeah, sorry, I've been chomping at the bit for like eight minutes. Yeah, I'm yeah, sneaking yeah. one snick yeah. comment. Uh, it was on the tip of my tongue. Two, just fact, more of just a fact clarification rather than a comment. One of them was that I just need to remind people whenever we talk about this 1.5 and 2 degrees, those are the most optimistic numbers of a range, right? That the 2 degree number and the 1.5 number weren't come up to, like it didn't round evenly to 2 degrees. There's a mathematical model which creates ranges and that's the lowest number on the range because everyone's understood for a decade that you have to give them the least dangerous option or someone will like that's just that's just the way it's been going right so it's entirely possible that we're already 0.5 degrees past the tipping point we have to understand that we may already passed it five years ago right and the other thing was that uh, just a quick comment about the quit your job thing there's a huge amount of action you can take between what people have currently done most people have actually done and quitting your job so even if that was morally imperative to say um, there's about a hundred thousand things you can do first that people haven't done that they need to do before that's even should be considered. Uh, just a quick option would be call your uh, political party of choice, tell them that you voted for them steadily for 10 years and say they will not get your vote this year unless they get serious about climate change. That's like things like that, telling the parties ahead of time that you are paying attention to their policy and that just because they say the word climate change that that is not good enough and tell them now uh, every single person who is considering quitting their job should do that first. Uh, Now we're going to go, I intentionally, uh, subconsciously must have picked this out of the air uh, because we're talking about global sea level rise and this is Great Big Sea, Ordinary Day. I've got a smile on my face and I've got four walls around me Got the sun in the sky, all the water surround me. The Green Majority is entirely listener supported. Our goal to reach minimum solvency is to raise $300 a month. If you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com for as little as $1. And welcome back. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners, as well as our lovely, talented, and very appreciated podcast listeners. Back to you, Stefan. Hey, hey, hey. It's just an ordinary day. 
Yes, Dave. It's all your state of mind. Yeah. That's At the a, end of the day, Stefan, you've just got to say, it's all right. See, that was about 20 years ago, I believe, <laughs> that they released that. Uh, and so not to, not to, not to question Big, Great Big C's uh, current <laughs> position on, on whether or not it's all, everything's going to be all right. Maybe they're changed. Maybe. Yeah, I did, I did mean that music choice slightly ironically. <laughs> not, uh, let the, I don't want to go so far as to say gaslighting, but it was in that department. Right, yeah. Yeah, now to Great PC's defense, again, they released that song a long time ago. So maybe they've changed their mind about whether or not an ordinary day. They're the nation's leading moralists. Yes, Great Big C. The the states has has Jonathan Franzen. We have Great Big C. Oh, you know they do great, make good music. So, uh, so we we have a quick middle segment. Not that I believe that Jonathan Franzen is the leading moralist, but I read that somebody had that opinion. Right, right. Um, Well. In case anyone is going to come at you on Twitter about your Jonathan Friends and take, that's the thing that we're known for here. Now, now, the Canadian government has apologized to Brian Adams on several occasions. <laughs> uh, my, t- my Twitter is fake anyway. Yes, exactly. Uh, okay, so quick middle segment on Trudeau because we have two uh, bigger segments on, on coal at the end. So here we go. So with our Canadian federal elections less than two months away, Mr. Justin Trudeau has fallen into more hot water regarding his purchase of the Trans Mountain Expansion Pipeline as a federal court is allowing out of uh, is allowing 6 out of 12 legal challenges to proceed the court determined that the environmental and conflict of interest concerns were null but that the appeals based on inadequate indigenous consultation can go ahead the court decided uh, that even after the government ramped up its consultations in response to a 2018 finding that they hadn't been done properly the government had potentially still failed to consult uh, concerned First First Nations groups in good faith. Trudeau claimed at the time that while they were earnestly seeking the First Nations' consent, uh, they would not allow them to hold a veto, and it seems obvious in any case that the government was planning to go ahead with the pipeline no matter what. Thus, their revamped consultations process was hurried forward and was not much more meaningful than what had been done previously. Pipeline supporters, of course, have always argued uh, that Trans Mountain is an economic necessity for Alberta and even Canada as a whole, while opponents have argued that it is committing us further to the very machine that is threatening the global ecosystem. Justice David Stratus, in this case, said of the environmental concerns, quote, The governor in council found that compelling public interest considerations clearly outweighed the adverse environmental effects. The decisive and emphatic nature of that finding leads inexorably to the conclusion that the governor and council would still conclude that the project is, on balance, in the public interest and would still approve it. Pipeline supporters are furious that the government neglected to intervene in the appeals process with any kind of defense of its indigenous consultations. The judge cited this neglect in the ruling, but the government has said that it believes it has done everything right, didn't want to interfere with the appeals process, and was waiting for the right time to mount their defense. A conservative MP from Alberta, Michelle Rempel, said that this neglect, quote, confirmed our worst suspicions. And the CBC quotes her as saying that Trudeau rolled over and refused to stand up for the Trans Mountain Pipeline in court, not submitting a defense against 11 motions to overturn the approval of the project. He never had any intention of seeing this pipeline built, but spent billions of tax dollars to kick the issue past the election. No one on any side of the pipeline debate should trust Justin Trudeau. 
And in other Dom Trudeau news, Justin is being quoted in a new book by the CBC's Aaron Huary as arguing that political concerns will always trump the environment in Canada, saying, quote, If we can't demonstrate that we can take real, tangible actions on the environment and continue to get, su- to get the support of Canadians, no government's going to bother defending the environment anymore. It'll be seen as an electoral loser, and Canada can't afford that. Green Party leader Elizabeth May called out this defeatism by calling the argument perverse and telling the CBC, quote, The single biggest obstacle on climate change has been incremental political thinking. Is this issue an election winner? Is this a loser? So that kind of framing for me is really interesting, because it's perverse. And that's exactly why we're in this mess we're in now, is that we have not been honest. Our actions are not consistent with what is required. I, I love that line uh, that that no government will try to protect the environment if it's conceded. No government has tried to protect the environment already. <laughs> the idea that any government in the last since since I can remember being in since I can remember governments, uh, I am thirty years old. Uh, the closest I would say we came to a, a, a government that could be claimed as trying to protect it was maybe the last year when Kretchen was thought wanted something to to hold his hang his hat on, so try to get Kyoto through, uh, and yet you know before that again still nothing. So the idea, just the concept, that that Canada Canadian governments have have keep trying, but but the electoral people are not are not agreeing with them is is ludicrous. Uh, and and offensive. He's sort of saying like, if we don't win this election, it's over for the environment. And it was. Anyways, I'll go you ahead. guys had your chance. Yeah. Uh, sorry, David. Um, uh, reread the first sentence of that, please. Of Trudeau talking the, quoted in the yeah book. the very first you, the very beginning you started reading. This if is the we first sentence. don't demonstrate that we can take real tangible actions on the environment and continue to get to the support of Canadians, no Canadian government's going to bother defending the environment anymore. Oh darn! Okay, uh, it, it may have been earlier in the thing. the The point was was that the, the part of the read in there. Maybe maybe you have it there. Maybe I misremembered where it was from. But the part of the read in was you know uh, oil oil. You know the right wing says uh, that oil is very important, and the left wing says this is a moral crisis. Oh yeah, yeah. that's that is why we can't have nice things <laughs> because that to every single right winger, every single person who's even slightly confused about climate change. That is an affirmative statement that the conservative claim is correct, and it isn't. The correct answer to that response is, great, if you're concerned about the economy, there is nothing more securing of the Canadian economy we can do than prepare for climate change. That one piece of information is the entire reason why environmental campaigns fail, because the people who try and promote them concede falsely, incorrectly, that the A, the only reason to do it is moral— and B, that it's going to cost us a lot of money. And both of those things are false. Well, I mean, saying that it threatens the global ecosystem is not necessarily a purely moral. <laughs> when someone says right. uh, the reason to not do something is because it's expensive, and you say, yes, but I like it, no, there no, is no, an no, implied no, no, no. The global, consent the global to the original ecosystem. proposition. This is how you imagine what the global ecosystem is. No, no, but you have to put yourself. We're thinking about right-wing voters here. We're not thinking about educated people who are like have background in the environment or people who are interested in politics. To your average person, if you say I like that hamburger, and someone says yeah, but it's expensive, and you're like yeah, but I want it, you're conceding the expense, and you're just simply saying yes, but my desire for it surpasses that concession. That 
That is how people hear it, whether or not you mean it that way. What, and that that's why we keep losing. That's why they keep losing. Saying that it threatens the global ecosystem? Yeah. When was the, when was the last time you heard a right-winger say the global ecosystem was worth money? Well, right? they just, they, when they, they hear that, they say... Yes, they hear it's going to be, yes, it is going to be expensive. The right wing is correct, but you're, you should just be upset about it morally, about the abstract concept of the environment. That's not what is being said, but that is what right wing voters hear. I think, I think right wingers ag agree that the global ecosystem is important and that, and that ecosystems. Not important. if it's going to cost us any money. Not if it's going to cost us a penny. They'll do things long as it's free they will if you say this is moral but it's going to be expensive they will say no i don't know if you can i don't know if you can color a whole a whole voting I'm, I'm going by as, the as i'm going the by way. the last five elections we've had and every claim that's ever been made about the environment by any right-wing politician ever so it's i'm not pulling it out of my butt i don't i don't mean to i don't mean to like argue with you about it but like this is that's the only thing the left in this country has never tried which well, is to well, argue on the basis of things for some other reason other than starting with morality. The right wing thinks that left wing morality is the problem. I don't think it's like, morality. This is where we get into all these conversations about like, uh, you know, uh, pe uh, people going to jail for using the wrong pronouns. This is an obsession of the right is you're making me do things I shouldn't have to do. So the argument has to be we have no choice, not, yeah, no, but you really should want to. I think everybody educated in the Canadian public school system understands that ecosystems are the life support system of everything that we experience. We significantly disagree about that. <laughs> Um, all right. Well, trying to, to, to bring us back to, to Trudeau for half a second, uh, the, the way that this, um, this, the way, the, the way that 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 this this has been framed by the liberal government specifically is and in the way that 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 this particular thing will end up landing i think uh with the, the pipeline versus not pipeline is i'm just i'm relatively confused entirely exactly what the liberal government actually wants to happen with this entire outcome um in in that i'm i don't entirely understand what their goal is in that like to me, honestly, the perhaps best case scenario for the Liberal government is to have the Kinder Morgan pipeline expansion blocked uh, well, in, by the courts in, after they win this election, and then they give up. What but, do they do with the money, though? Well, they, they, they could still continue to own the current uh, pipeline and make the money off they have now. But the expansion part of it, to me, is, 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 is astronomically going to be a, a problem for them no matter what. There's no way to, to square these two sides of things. There's no way to square uh, the, the conversation around, uh, around, around climate that we're currently experiencing and as it will continue to ramp up with, with this conversation. And there's no, honestly no way that I, – I'm kind of surprised, and I would like to read more about this, how the court could throw out the conflict of interest part of this, given that the federal government is, is the regulator and the owner of the pipeline. Well, we have we – have, I think what's happening here is the, the court is deciding whether or not these appeals should be presented to the governor and council. Hmm. And the governor and council is someone who's been appointed by the government to oversee this thing. And the judge has decided the government and council it can't be considered – the government itself can't be considered right. part of the Liberal Party, mm. and so or can't be considered the Canadian government. Therefore, they don't technically own the pipeline. Therefore, it's not a conflict of interest. Right, right. I, I guess I disagree with that thought process. Mm. Um, but but to, yeah, I don't know. To, to the the number of different things we'll cover this probably when we when we do our October fourth sort of discussion about different climate policies, because uh, the National Observer did a very good uh, sit down interview with Catherine McKenna uh, about sort of where they stand, and it really does seem like they 
truly believe this is th- that that what they're doing is the most they can get done. And I just don't understand that. But anyways, um, the there's a really good article there, and and we'll cover sort of the way that these things are happening. But um, uh, like ultimately, there really is this question I have on 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 how we expect there to be uh, real real consultation uh, with with a group of with with a group of people where the everyone seems to believe that the 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 building of the pipeline is guaranteed and if the building of the pipeline is guaranteed then no there's no such thing as adequate consultation because if you do not give the people you're consulting with a veto then you're not consulting you know it doesn't it, uh, we've said this millions of times on the show but there's just not really a way to have a nation to nation relationship like like if the United States said that Canada and the United States have a nation-to-nation relationship, but the United States is also going to build a pipeline through Toronto, and then they'll ask the people in Toronto how they feel about it, but they're going to do it, and there's no version of that conversation that the Torontonians could have with the United States where anyone in Toronto would believe they were adequately consulted. Well, it's, it's nation-to-nation purely semantically. Well, exactly, and 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 I think in that and in, in, in that is illustrated very quickly as soon as you imagine two other nations having this conversation. Right. As soon as you imagine it being the United States trying to build a pipeline through Toronto and the, and, and, and the United States asking Toronto and the, the, how they feel about it and what they should do as well to do this. And Toronto being like, maybe don't. And then being like, no, we're going to do this. The, immediately, you can imagine no one in the city of Toronto believing that they were adequately consulted because they're 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 not being given the opportunity to actually say maybe not at all. Or maybe not through this particular place of land, which is important to us because we live here. Yes. You know. Anyways, uh, we love our semantics. That's why we had to call our genocide cultural. Right. Exactly. Um, uh, but let's let's. I do. We do have a, a fair amount of actual information in the last section about coal. So I do want to get back to that. Uh, but there's a couple of great National Observer articles uh, that I recommend. One is that interview with Catherine McKenna, and the other is an article called uh, "Who Are the Winners and Losers Under Liberal Climate Policy." Um, so both should be checked out on. NationalObserver.com, but let's go to a music break, and we'll come back with all things coal. Yeah, I'm just uh, I'm just on the Great Big Sea uh, train today. We're gonna do when I get up, I can't get down. I am lifted, I am lifted. When I'm up, I can't get down, can't get down, can't get level. When I'm up, I can't get down. Get my feet back on the ground. And we are back. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners. And before I pass you back to Stefan, maybe some feedback from the audience. Do you find it a relaxing uh, juxtaposition to have like intense news and then happy songs? Or do you find it jarring? Uh, Mm. Because I could put on more depressing music. Um, If you have a strong opinion about that, please uh, feel free to tweet uh, one of us uh, or email the show. I'm genuinely curious. That's a sincere (laughs) question, Stefan. Amazing. Uh, Yeah, important updates. I, I usually in pro upbeat, but uh, but I understand the question. Uh, we do have a ton of news I want to get to, so let us get let's jump right into coal story number one. Yeah, so we're just going to look at two articles from the New York Times. Uh, this first one is from last year. So climate reporter Samini Sengupta wrote a piece for the New York Times called "The World Needs to Quit Coal: Why Is It So Hard?" Published in November 2018, about the economic necessity of coal in Asian countries. She points out that even though coal is one of the biggest drivers of the climate crisis and is on decline in wealthy nations, it remains the single biggest energy source in the world. This is because, she argues, the infrastructure has already been built and there is a huge economic and political apparatus already constructed around it. 
politicians subsidize it, banks profit from it, powerful corporations control it, and people vote for it because it delivers cheap electricity. Sengupta points out that Asia consumes three-quarters of coal energy globally and is home to more than, th- than three-quarters of coal plants either planned or under construction. She notes that many of the continent's biggest countries are still expanding coal, that Japan, having once moved on from coal, has brought it back to life after the Fukushima disaster, that China accounts for half the world's coal consumption, employs over 4.3 million people in the mines, and China alone has increased the world's coal capacity by 40% since 2002. Both Japan and China are building coal plants in other countries as well, and the Indian state of Telangana says that it has enough coal to keep fueling its grids for the next 100 years. Part of the reason for this, obviously, is that it has brought electricity to millions and millions of people across Asia over the past several decades. Thus, coal proponents can, can and do argue that it's good for poor people, and environmental policies are therefore bad for poor people. But it's also true that poor people suffer from coal production, since many of them are forced to live in areas either already covered in ash and soot, to accept that their homes are now going to be permanently covered in ash and soot, or else to give up their lush subsistence farms to coal companies who then turn their previously beautiful communities into barbed-wired, walled-off deserts of black dust. Sengupta ends her piece by writing, quote, Analysts say India must retool its electricity grid for the post-coal era. Battery technology is fast advancing. Microgrids can replace traditional electricity systems. Many existing coal plants are now running below capacity, several are idle, and new energy efficiency standards could slow down demand to the point where there may be a glut of costly coal-fired plants. Left holding this bundle of stranded assets, the public sector banks that financed them. For now, though, coal accounts for 58% of India's energy mix. And she quotes India's energy secretary as saying, quote, It's not that I'm using the coal very, will- very willingly, but I have to. Yeah, so this is a important time to, to highlight the a an update on, on on Warren's plan, but also both Warren and Sanders had as part of their plans a a, a significant portion of money going towards uh, supporting other organize uh, other countries work towards uh, towards towards climate uh, action. And and this is why it's so important because if you want to when you, I think one of them was like two hundred billion dollars and and that kind of leapfrog technology or or work towards ensuring that these people are getting the ability to power their 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 nations and and exist in this sort of in sort of way has to be a part of this global plan or or we're just going to create a further gap between between this and it will only. It will only make like because as the glut of coal gets bigger and bigger, uh, the the coal will get cheaper, right? Like if 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 only the wealthy nations move off coal, um, and 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 those who and those who you know, you're seeing us even with with even like the the Koch brothers had had a at one point a couple of years ago had this sort of toxic sludge you could get out of the oil sands that no one would take except for a few countries and they had sort of taken that really cheaply and you couldn't even you could not burn it in the United States and so they were selling it other places to make money and and that kind of thing will continue um, unless we unless we actually support these other organizations these other places to to truly to truly change you know and 
And so, and so that is why. Uh, so both, and so as a quick update, uh, right before the climate town hall, uh, Elizabeth Warren had released uh, her sort of updated final climate plan, which which largely uh, built off of and adopted uh, Governor Jay Inslee's uh, 10-year climate plan. And Inslee was basically joined the race specifically to talk about climate. He was instrumental in ensuring that climate remained on the on the docket. And then he sort of dropped out basically once they agreed to do a debate, uh, once, basically once he's felt like he had done as much as he could to sort of push this conversation forward. And we're now seeing Democratic frontrunners uh, like Elizabeth Warren pick up a lot of his proposals and his timelines. And so kudos to, to that kind of that was you know as far as if you're going to be one of like the you know like the 12th person running this is the way to do it right like if you're if you not have any chance you, you run on a thing you make it a conversation and you get provide real policy proposals to get that job done um and and so uh so the does it as a heads up if you want to learn more about uh warren's uh, new plan that was sort of we covered a little bit last week but now there's a, a much more op- larger opt- uh, adoption of a of three trillion more dollars work to work um towards it there's a whole bunch of news coming out about it and there's a good guardian article that sort of ranks the top climate proposals between of, of biden's and 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 uh and warren's and sanders and a few others so there's more information there uh, but i just want to heads up that that's, that update has come through and so our conversation last week was a little missed a little uh more of the news that are that's came out this week basically uh but you you had a thing about uh sanders and warren before I yeah sorry thank you it's it's a very high level thing but i think it's important to for everyone to sort of keep in mind as we discuss them so i uh long-time listeners of the show will know that i absorb an inordinate amount of american political news in it in addition to the the general environment news and i've listened to several hours worth of very intense scrutiny of these climate policies that i will hope i'm going to synthesize here in a couple of sentences for you which is that some important information if you're looking at like say just bernie and and warren and asking like who has the better climate plan uh well it's it's easy it's it bernie bernie has a better climate plan it it does more it covers more it's more comprehensive but there's an important caveat here and this is where knowing a little bit about who bernie sanders and elizabeth warren are makes a lot of sense um, Bernie Sanders has been in the, is one of the longest running U.S. senators. He's been in the Senate forever. Um, he very much approaches problems as a community organizer. Elizabeth Warren, I didn't know this. I think this is very important information. Is a former hedge fund manager who essentially had a moral awakening. So, despite the fact that not not despite the fact, but like you know, you, you have to understand that they're really approaching these problems for different directions and and as different people, which is what explains their approaches. So it's not a matter, uh, in my opinion, and in and many people have looked at this as opinion of necessarily. Um, you know, Bernie being a better on climate, but more a fact of strategy, right? So Bernie's a, a strategy for this is we're going to need to make rock some really big boats here. While the, all the chess pieces are moving around the board, we may as well move them as much as we can, right? So he's looking for comprehensive. He's looking for structural, more change, more impact, bigger benefit. Warren's plan is more um, focused and it deals with specific things. Still going to have a large impact, but not as comprehensive. The argument would be that Warren's plan is more doable with the political system that the Americans have. So if you're just looking at who has the better environment policy, it's it's open shut, Bernie Sanders. But uh, that just comes with that important caveat. And I think it's important just for people to think about them as the difference between those two candidates as having a lot of very similar politics, the biggest difference between them being how they're approaching these problems as opposed to being significantly different on policy. That's that's the summation of hours and hours of, of YouTube watching for me. Elizabeth Warren is also a, a law professor at Harvard. Um, 
and so sort of brings a brings a level of those things. I'm also going to try to figure out where she was a hedge fund manager, but that's a different question. Uh, going to uh, going to last story on coal. So uh, just a couple weeks ago, the same author as the last coal story, Somini Sengupta, partnered with Jacqueline Williams and Aruna Chandrasekhar to profile the work of Indian industrialist Gautam Madani in an article called How One Billionaire Could Keep Three Countries Hooked on Coal for Decades. The three countries are India, Australia, and Bangladesh. Adani's eponymous company, the authors illustrate, lobbied heavily in Australia's province of Queensland, uh, giving money to community organizers, basketball arenas, campaigns, and political aides to help politicians open up a huge, untouched area of the province to new coal mining. And indeed they have. In India, Adani, thanks to his political connections and the country's thirst for electricity, was able to secure ports that allow them to deliver coal to almost anywhere in India, but also to develop thousands of hectares of a protected forest. Next, uh, next to the town of Gada, the government has helped them forcibly remove poor people off their lush farms in order to build a coal plant there, killing mangroves and paddy fields and charging protesters with criminal trespassing. So the people who lived there are now criminals for trying to maintain, you know, their land or stay where they're living. And that particular plant will actually sell electricity to neighboring Bangladesh, and yet it's being paid for by Indians and is polluting Indian communities. And then, not only do Indians have to give up their land to coal plants that tax their, uh, that their tax money is helping to build, but when the price of coal went up, the government allowed the company to sell electricity at a higher rate than originally stated in its contract. Some financial analysts argue, meanwhile, that the extremely lucrative chain of deals that allows Adani to bring coal energy from Australia to Bangladesh at the expense of Indian citizens would not be possible without heavy government assistance. The authors quote an analyst at the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis as saying, quote, throw enough subsidies and anything can be viable. If they did not have special treatment back in India, they wouldn't be able to use expensive Australian-sourced coal viably. And economist and energy policy researcher Anant Sudarshan of the University of Chicago told the authors of the report, quote, if you just looked at the social costs of air pollution, coal is so bad that if those are added in as a tax, no coal plant would make economic sense. <laughs> that, yeah, that's, uh, I feel like that last line is, is something that I would just would like to put everywhere. Um, the, so as a quick aside, uh, Elizabeth Warren was never a hedge fund manager. Uh, there's just you know, that she studied law. She taught it. She taught environments. She taught. She taught kids to do things. Uh, she learned about bankruptcy. Um, but there's at least nothing that I can find anywhere that says at least Brazilian. Yeah, hedge no, I'm major. I'm checking for the reference okay. for that, but it right. was it was from something. Okay, great. Back to you about that. But yeah, right. no, it. She also also all of those things. I'm checking for the reference for all that right. specific. Point. Great. Yes. Um, she certainly did work uh, in bankruptcy law for many years, uh, which which would give you a specific way of understanding how that works. Um, and the but yeah, it was basically the but to to sort of switch back over to coal, the the conversation. Um, uh, has to be starting from that point of get like we have enough coal to burn us down right there's just not even there's not even a question the 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 idea that 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 you could not um cannot 
like we could have enough coal to, to guess to four degrees, five degrees. There's this like this coal is perhaps the we might run out of phosphate, but we're not going to run out of coal. Like the idea that we're going to hit peak coal, uh, or honestly, the idea that that we'll even hit peak oil at this point seems to be uh, much more likely that we'll just run out of the ability to do that. Like that seems much, much more likely that we're going to run, that we're going to have to, that will, that the question is no longer and can no longer be that we need to move off this because we're going to run out of these resources, uh, but rather that, that, that they will destroy our atmosphere uh, before we get a chance to do that. And what's odd is that there's still like climate apocalypse videos being um, produced on YouTube and watched widely, even from two years ago that still use the idea of peak oil as evidence of how everything's over essentially right yeah yeah and and at this point i think i think the shale gas revolution really was the uh was the thing that uh that sort of tipped the scales on whether or not peak oil was a real conversation um that as fracking sort of expanded how much you oil you could get from different places and you know the united states and canada are are, are i think on track contracted basically about 40 percent i believe of uh, of global oil production in the future like because of how much uh because of the ability to use fracking to 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 get at parts of oil places that were not available um, th- these types of these types of things are really leading towards a, a world where that 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 can no longer be the conversation. We cannot talk about whether or not we're going to run out of these these things um, because because that is not going to be what what hurts us first. <laughs> um, uh, but but you know and, and and the other thing about the story, of course, is is really that this that you know that that man we didn't cover it too much on the show, but that Australian election that has happened was devastating. You know, you want to see an example of of of, of really not, uh, you know, what do you say? An example of of of, of what, what, what really what Trudeau was arguing uh, in in the last section. We want to give you want to give the sort of liberal doctrination uh, any credit whatsoever. The the lib the election in Australia is the example of that. Uh, you know, the left wing party ran very heavily on climate, uh, and the right wing party uh, sort of targeted the specific areas where coal was being most supported, um, and 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 that was their angle, and and so. This is the this is the this is the battle that we're that 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 Trudeau imagines his world to be in, um, and and as much as as much as uh, uh, as much as we would it like to 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 feel that that there's no no value in that in that argument you know we've seen it happen in Australia. Well, um, there's just the question of whether they'll continue to uh, run on climate issues in the future after right. having lost so badly here. Right. Yes. Um, and and. And yet, I think I do still think at the same time that there's only you know this is the one the issue that will only continue going in one direction, right? There's not climate's not going to become less of an issue uh, as we move forward, and the the youth who are seeing are growing up are clearly not becoming are clearly becoming more and more engaged, right? You know, when there was almost no talk of of, of climate in 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 my education, uh, you know, 15 years ago, and and now there's you know students walking out every Friday, mm-hmm. uh, so so I certainly think that there's an expectation. And I I expect at least that to see this continue to grow and grow, uh, which is my final call because we are running out of time uh, to to say to ch- look up what's happening on the twenty seventh in your community. Uh, join join uh, whatever's going on here. It's happening at Queens Park at at eleven o'clock. But uh, yes, the, cl- the international climate strike on the twenty seventh. We'll be back next week uh, with more news and more information. Have a real wonderful week, everyone, and uh, throwing off to the to the music and see you all real soon.